After a promising start, natural foods grocer Lucky's Market is closing all but seven of its locations. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola has no plan to nix its plastic bottle. And this just in, Walmart is increasing its starting wage to $12 per hour. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, February 3rd, and this is your Retail Rundown. Hi, everyone. Today, we're joined by Laura Heller and Ricardo Belmar. Laura is an industry insider and columnist at Forbes. She is also a regular speaker and panel moderator at industry events and conferences like Shop Talk, CES, Commerce Next, and she's also a former editor of Retail Dive. Ricardo is the senior director of global enterprise marketing at InfoVista and a retail influencer with 20 years of industry experience where he's focused on digital transformation. Ricardo also serves on the Rethink Retail Advisory Council. Thank you, Ricardo and Laura, for joining today. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So the first topic of discussion, we're getting into grocery. Lucky's just announced its plans to close 32 of its 39 stores. Huge decision. It came in the wake of the Kroger Company's discussion in December to divest in the grocery chain. The Colorado-based supermarket first opened doors in 2003. It markets itself as an organic grocery store for the 99%. And their second location opened way later in 2013. And in 2016, Kroger invested in the brand to bring its store count to nearly 40 locations. So this is a big change, especially because they just cut ribbons at so many stores. Ricardo, what do you think went wrong? And I know we don't necessarily have insight to their financial details. What's the macro level issue here? Well, you know, on the surface, this is actually, I think, kind of a tough one to call. But when you look at what the makeup of their locations, you know, I think that the 32 stores they're closing are spread across 10 states. I think I read somewhere the remaining seven that they had are actually being bought by their chef founders. So seven of them, it seems, will will live on. Uh, But even those seven, I think, are being spread across five states. So the pattern I see with them that I think is interesting is They've taken their concept and really spread themselves wide geographically. Usually, we tend to you know expect a lot of these chains to expand by maybe not too close together, but let's say you know within a, a particular region, so that as they expand their distribution and logistics channels, it's more of an organic growth and doesn't put a lot of strain on them uh, mm-hmm. to do that. Now, you figure their format right; it's very much focused on natural and organic. Uh, they have a, had a very unique shopping experience. This is a place where you could sip a, uh, a craft beer while you're shopping or get a glass of wine while you're walking around the shop. It, it very much felt like a farmer's market environment. And they have a pretty loyal following from, I've noticed on uh, Twitter, especially a lot of people posting their disappointment that their local uh, local Luckies is closing. You know, the, the format was certainly unique and interesting, but you have to wonder if if we knew what their financials were like, right? You would want to know where they stretched a little too thin on the logistics side and their supply chain. Obviously, they must try to source a lot of local produce ingredients. You know, that's always a challenge in and of itself to do. But if they needed to move things around, you know, they had stores that spread from Michigan down to Florida. You know, my surface glance at it is that there's probably something about spreading too geographically wide. I don't know if it's so much the store count growth that may have been a challenge for them as much as it is how widely they distributed them. I did see a note in one article, uh, I can't remember which publication, that they had reported that if they were to keep those stores open into their 2020 budget year, they were on track to lose $30 million uh, from that. So clearly the costs were too high to sustain without Kroger's backing. 
And I think this is, you know, the result that we're seeing because of that. You know, it's also true that their year-end comp store sales were down over 10%, I think really close to 11%. And I'm just not sure that this is the right format and the right model for the locations they had. I mean, if you want to be a natural food store for the 99%, I don't know how many of them live in Naples or Sarasota or Neptune Beach, Florida. These are pretty upper income demographics that have a few more options available to them. And Aldi has really been rolling over and owning that other part of it. Their expansion of natural foods and free from additives is, you know, pretty comprehensive. And they really are the natural food store for the 99% and in a very affordable way. And their locations match that. So I'm not quite sure that Lucky really had the business model that spelled success, at least in this this area. It's the consumer trends have really caught up to it and run right over it. You know, we have Aldi taking over that category. Kroger itself has managed to onboard a lot of natural food brands, develop some of themselves, and carve out its own place there as the nation's largest grocery store or supermarket chain, I should say, after Walmart. And where is there room for a store like Lucky's? I'm not sure. Yeah, that is, it's a, a great point too. So if you think about it, even you know, as you mentioned Kroger, but even Walmart for that matter, right? Every major grocery brand is really moving into this natural organic area because that's the trend, right? That's the consumer trend right now. And it, it is a pretty cutthroat space at the end of the day. I think grocery is a tough segment. The margins aren't big. Uh, so it is tough competitively. You know, you have the you know, call them the, the original organic store right, with Whole Foods. Uh, now by Amazon trying to create some noise. You've got uh, even Publix getting into this space right in some of the areas where Lucky's was located. It, it's a lot of competition. It is. Uh, I think there's definitely something to that, right? That they're, they were really struggling with that. Sure. And even Whole Foods was struggling with that. They created the concept and everybody else caught up to them. And by the way, so did the consumer. Right. So it wasn't just a small upscale niche consumer that had that was shopping the way the Whole Foods shopper was sort of considered to be at the beginning. Right now, everybody shops this way or many people shop this way. And so it's not a niche. It's just another element of business as usual in grocery. And Ricardo, you're right. I mean, it is a cutthroat channel of retail. Yeah, absolutely. Very low margin. Highly supported by vendors in terms of co-op advertising dollars and shelf placements and end cap rentals. And, you know, a small player just can't really leverage that scale that it needs to, I don't think. Yeah, that's, that's true. And if, I mean, even just thinking of other small players, right, there was that other uh, announcement in New York, right, that also announced their, I mean, they were definitely small, right? I think it was seven or eight locations. They announced their mm-hmm. closing as well. So it's they're not the only ones, right, in this small right size nature that are, are struggling to stay alive in this cutthroat competition. Yeah, that was Fairway Foods. And Fairway, yes, yes, that's the one. Being mourned bitterly by its shoppers and so will Lucky Foods. I mean, I have friends in Sarasota that have been posting photos of the shelves as they empty <laughs> and got some great deals on mm-hmm. wine. But, you know, people are very attached emotionally to the grocery stores, regardless of the store, right? It's a very personal experience. It's someplace we go more than once a week. We sort of subconsciously have to trust 
grocers more than anybody else in our, our world, really outside of our family, to provide us with safe food, to feed our family in a way that we can afford. And so, yes, people will miss it for sure. And it's a shame that the business model wasn't sustainable. It is a shame because I do love my local Luckies and I will be one of those people who's very sad to see it go. And I think there's something that other grocers can take away from what Luckies built. You know, it started out as a mom and pop operation and expanded quickly attracted loyal customers. So having the ability to go and stroll and have a very affordable glass of wine or beer while you're shopping. And also they they occasionally had live music and other events that would take place at the store. I think these are things we'll see other competitors start doing. I will say, I think it sounded like both of you agreed that there's just cutthroat competition in the grocery space. And that was a major challenge. And then some of their location decisions might have been questionable, not only because of the competitors located right next to them, but also how spread out geographically the expansion was. And before we move on to the next note, I just want to say I have not stepped foot in a grocery store for two months because I am addicted now to Instacart. I read somewhere that by 2022, at least in the US, the e-grocery market will be at over 300 billion. So I do think there's competition from that end as well. Certainly, especially yeah, in absolutely. the higher end. That's one of probably the more exciting things to happen in my area in grocery is that we've got some places now starting to, to do Instacart. A lot of people that know me have known, I've complained for a while that I happen to be in an area that seems to sit just outside of oh. everyone's grocery delivery. <laughs> oh, <laughs> even, no. even Walmart, we're done. We're in a, and it's interesting because I'm in a neighborhood that has close to 5,000 homes and the entire area is like, let you know, probably a quarter of a mile just outside of our, our Walmart's grocery delivery area. So even for them, we're, we're outside in the range. But I know a lot of people in my neighborhood, myself included, are starting to take advantage of the pickup options. Mm-hmm. The Walmart, we have Wegmans that does it. There's an all, all these that just opened near us that everyone's been excited about. Uh, so we have plenty of grocery store options, not a lot of delivery, but I know there's a lot of pent-up demand in our neighborhood for that too. <laughs> well, for your sake, I hope they expand soon, Ricardo, because... <laughs> You deserve the joy of grocery delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. The next one we're going to talk about, so this is one of the world's most well-known brands, Coca-Cola. They are announcing, their head of sustainability, uh, Bia Perez, told BBC News recently that its customers prefer the lightweight and resealable plastic bottle, and doing away with it would be bad for business. So... To offset this, they're pledging to use at least 50% of recycled material in its packaging by 2030 in 10 years from now. And last year, Coke was reported to be the most polluting brand worldwide, according to a global audit of plastic waste. (laughs) So, you know, meanwhile, Starbucks is sharing its goal of becoming resource positive by 2030, and a lot of other companies are making big shifts. So I wanted to pass this to Laura first and just say, We're seeing soda sales decline globally due to consumer shifts toward healthier living. And is Coke's decision to forgo the sustainable packaging a bit misguided? Well, I don't think so. And I'm disappointed in it, but I'm not their customer for this product. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is the the point here and the relevant point. And this conversation is really well-timed. I mean, I, I think Coke reported earnings this morning and they reported growth for products like Coke Zero Sugar and the smaller cans of Coke, this little half kind of single servings that people pack in lunches um, and feel like they're moderating their sugar intake via the smaller mm-hmm. portions. They've launched a, a new flavored sparkling water and they've got another one coming in March. And so 
Coke is a savvy company, right? They know that those sales are declining. And so do you chase the declining market or do you go big in the emerging markets? And, mm-hmm. and they've chosen to do the second. Now, the customer who maybe likes the resealable plastic bottle isn't the one who's terribly concerned with that aspect of their business. It's like, is you know, whenever, think about the fast food industry and how many fast food outlets have launched healthy options and salads and, you know, tried to make a push for nutritional items on their menus and they don't sell because the person, that customer isn't going to a fast food outlet looking for something healthy. Maybe one person in a large group will order it if they have to eat there, but by and large, it doesn't make it worth their while. And, and I think Coke is maybe placing their bets here in a smart way. Will that change going forward? Maybe. something. These things get reevaluated all the time. But for them, um, when they say their customer doesn't want a shift, I'm going to believe them. Great points. I love that the shift you mentioned and that they're, they are savvy, so it probably makes a lot of sense for them. Given the declining market for the soda sales Ricardo, are you in agreement with Laura on this? So, you know, I'm, I'm a little torn on, on this one just a bit. I mean, I, I agree that uh, it, when I think of Coke, that, you know, I know they're very savvy. They know how to interpret and read their customer. I'm sure they have plenty of survey data that tells them this and lots of other analytical data that has convinced them that this is the right move. So I don't doubt that they've made an intelligent decision based on the data they've got. I think to me, the question underlying this really is at what point does Coke or any other business like them feel the need that they have to chase the trends, right? So the trend, you know, you mentioned Starbucks, of course, uh, although they're somewhat different. I don't know that it's a fair comparison to make uh, with Starbucks, basically a CPG company with a, a restaurant cafe. But, you know, Starbucks's customer is different, right? They're not the same as a Coca-Cola customer. And a Starbucks customer probably does have more interest in what their sustainability practices are. And it factors into their choice of being a Starbucks customer. So I think they, in turn, you know, have made the right decision based on the data that they have. When I heard the news about this for Coke, I actually thought of a different brand. I thought about the Lego group. You know, Lego bricks, of course, are all plastic. Uh, and they have come under question in the past about, you know, what are they going to do? Because they produce millions and millions of these every year. And while, you know, I'm sure no one wants to think about their kids are playing with Legos and whether they, any of them ever get thrown away, Eventually, it's going to happen, right? Eventually, some of these pieces are going to make their way into a waste process. And what happens to all that plastic? And to Lego's credit, they have also announced, somewhat analogous to Starbucks, they're looking for more sustainable plant-based materials that they can use to replace the type of plastic they use. And they've set a target of 2030 as well for that. So you you have to wonder, well, when Lego looks at their customer, is their customer going to change the purchase decision if they don't have this sustainability uh, approach. And I think the answer is different for each of these brands. So on the one hand, yeah, I, I agree that Coke is probably making a smart decision given the data they have. It would not surprise me if you know, before this target date of 2030, we hear them announce something different uh, because you know, these consumer trends change from year to year. You know, If we accept the trends in the direction they're headed, you would expect more and more people to care and have an interest in what that plastic packaging is like. But I think Laura's point is correct in that the typical customer they're targeting is probably less concerned about that than others. Uh, and therefore, you know, from their business perspective, it ends up being the, the smart decision to make. I mean, on the other hand, though, the only other thing I thought about when I read about this is that, you know, they there may have been a lost PR opportunity for them and that they could have positioned a little bit differently, you know, other than just 
telling everyone they're going to use 50% recycled material when they're really combating this competing news, right? That claim they're the number one contributor to plastic waste like this around the world. You know, you'd want to know that they're at least thinking about what are they going to do next after that 50% reduction? You know, could they have offered any other ideas? And even if it was a simple statement of we're also exploring other alternative materials and over time we may choose to use different ones, even if it's not in the primary Coke product, maybe it's in one of these newer you know, flavored seltzer water uh, brands and other areas that they're doing. I do think that if they haven't made announcements like that, we may see that over time because it's just something that, you know, speaks to that specific target customer for that product line versus the product their main. I agree. So I, think, I think, you know, we could easily see things like that come from them. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I do think you're right. It's, it was a lost PR opportunity. And knowing how much Coke invests in innovation, I would be surprised that they aren't working on something, but you know. Exactly. Yeah, I would be too. I would be surprised if they're not. Mm -hmm. So they probably are, but maybe they don't want to overpromise because it it is an issue globally. What's the alternative? Plastic is very lightweight. It's what the customers want, even more importantly. So a lot of issues to tackle for a good solution. So the next topic, the last topic of today is Walmart. So they made big news after sharing that it's raising its starting hourly wage from $11 to $12 in 500 stores. So this is a wage increase that's part of its shift to what it calls its new workflow model, which is reclassifying floor level employees from department-based workers to team associates. Pay for team lead is also being increased to 18 hours. So this new model will give some of the lower level staff broader responsibilities. They're also empowering them with what a Walmart spokesperson said as a wider path for advancement with different training opportunities. And they do have uh, the new CEO of Walmart US. So he spoke at NRF's big show, John Ferner, and he revealed last month the company's new vision. And he told attendees at NRF that they plan to invest in employees a strategy that he says will positively impact retention, increase the bottom line, and improve overall customer satisfaction. So it's an interesting move considering competitors like Amazon and Target already committed to $15 an hour starting wage. So with that, Ricardo, do you think Walmart's $1 increase will garner the morale boost it's seeking? So I think this is an interesting one. I mean, I, I would think in the short term, there there's going to be some morale boost from that. You know, depending on your point of view, is is a one dollar increase significant enough compared to you know what you just mentioned about Target and Amazon? Long term, it's, it's that whatever morale boost there is from that, I would suspect wears off a bit. Some of the other things, though, that you know you mentioned may have a longer lasting impact. I, I attended that session at NRF where John Ferner spoke. To me, it was an interesting session. I, I've read the book that the uh, the interviewer was there with John Zanetton. And her book about uh, you know, good employment strategies. Mm. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that she talks about. She had in that book four retailer examples that had really good employee and job strategies, you know, including some employees who are, who are known in the retail space for having better benefits, higher pay, higher wages, and better working conditions that have that reputation. And I think the fact is, you know, historically, Walmart hasn't had the best reputation in this area. It's sort of a love-hate kind of thing where sometimes there are good news that comes from Walmart, like this kind of increase, which if nothing else, it's good news, right, that they're raising wages. I think that's a good thing for their employees in this case. The real question is, is it enough, right? What are the other strategies? I mean, I, I thought at that session, it was refreshing to see that he's taking to heart this approach and the kind of things that uh, Zainab Tan and her research at MIT have shown about employee practices. It's good to see Walmart being 
such a large retailer that they are, perhaps maybe trying to take more of a leadership role in moving the industry into an area where they are going to have better reputations as employers. At the end of the day, we all know the retail industry is, uh, I suppose, perhaps the largest industry of uh, employment in the country. So there, it's, it certainly matters. And it, as you mentioned, it, there's a tight labor market, especially for retailers. So retailers really have to be a little bit more competitive now, both to reduce turnover. I mean, historically, you know, retail has a very high turnover rate. I'm sure Walmart is considering that, and that's leading into this decision. But you know, it, it also kind of reminds me of, uh, in the past, you know, the former Starbucks CEO, Howard Bihar, you know, he sort of had a legendary approach in my mind to this, uh, having read some of his uh, writings on on how they looked at treating employees. You know, his philosophy was that you're just dealing with people, so you should be treating them like people and not treating them like assets. You know, he was famously known that you know the, the Starbucks philosophy was that their business was about serving people first, and oh by the way, they also sold coffee. So I'm not not necessarily suggesting that should be Walmart's approach, given what their business is like. But I think there's definitely things that can be done. It's good to see them moving in this direction. In some ways, I think this is playing catch up to what other large retailers have announced. You know, again, your, your example you mentioned about Target moving to the $15 wage. I think we've seen plenty of examples, both in general merchandise retail. I've seen good restaurant brand examples where they've moved to that $15 wage model and can point to increases in revenue because those employees become better employees and they deliver better customer service, which translates into more sales with customers in the store. So I think this is a, a good thing all around that way. But again, is, is it long-term morale improvement? I think the $1 increase in and of itself is probably a short-term morale booster. I would hope that we'll see you know, in the near future another announcement of yet another change that moves the needle closer to that 15 that the other retailers are doing. And that'll keep moving things forward and hope and helping morale with Walmart employees. You know, I imagine Walmart will do just that, right? Keep moving the ball forward incrementally because that gives them a lot of room to continue to boost morale in small doses for a few years to come, given where they were starting. And I give them a lot of credit because when I started covering them, you know, a generation ago, they were the poster child for bad employer. Some of that was true. And some of that was because they didn't participate in their own media message. And that's a different conversation, but the bar was low and they're going up and, and they're doing it thoughtfully, consistently. And it seems to be a genuine message. It doesn't ring false when they're doing it today. You know, in the past, there were some raised eyebrows with some of the things they announced. But as someone who's been taken through some of the newer stores and seeing the changes they've implemented in terms of, you know, the mobile technology that is helping employees take a little bit more control over their schedule and the robotics and technology that's being put into place in terms of stockroom programs that really are helping to reduce turnover and boost employee morale in a different way than than a increase in minimum wage is going to you know Walmart's benefiting the employees are benefiting you could see a different energy level at the store from this and it's helping to solve important pain points for the customer and really at the bottom line that's that's what Walmart needs to be doing in order to keep doing what they do in terms of business Mm -hmm. I would say, though, is because they did roll out, I think this year, there'll be up to a thousand of Walmart stores with robots. And these are they clean the floors, they unload in store items from trucks, they pick up orders in stores. Is that going to take away from jobs? Do you think that they'll reduce the amount of employees um, 
or will it just free up some of their time? Well, Walmart says it isn't reducing employees. It is just reallocating. Hmm. And I've seen no indication that that is incorrect at this point. Right. They have um, stockroom initiatives and, and um, inventory initiatives that are taking some of the worst jobs with the highest turnover and automating them or making them a much more manageable task for the store employees and then freeing them up to work elsewhere in the store. That's a win win for everybody. Right. Nobody wants to be on a loading dock in Minneapolis in January <laughs> unloading. Right. So right. so if there is a, a, a conveyor belt and an automated process that is making that warmer <laughs> and more manageable, that's a great thing. And by the way, those people weren't sticking around in that role for very long to begin with. So it was a HR drain in terms of turnover and not a plus to anybody. So, mm-hmm. so which jobs are we seeing? And this is just in terms of automation, right? And some of the other initiatives have to do with just employee empowerment, the minimum wage um, and the starting wage and the, the restructuring of some of the, the store tasks is a third component. And they're addressing this as an ecosystem in a way that Walmart and only Walmart can do, which is in terms of increasing efficiencies and coming up and innovating with their own solutions in this and not necessarily buying a solution off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to agree. I, I, I don't see their use of robotics at this point as being something that, you know, we should be concerned is going to, you know, cause mass job elimination. I, I do really think that they are using them in a way that is actually helpful to the employees that are there by, just as Laura said, by eliminating some of these conditions that are just frankly undesirable, right? Like the, the loading dock in the middle of winter in Minneapolis, you know, there are things that people would do because it was the job, but did they want to be doing those things? Most likely not. And could they be doing other things that are equally or potentially more useful to, you know, the Walmart's operations at that point, then sure, they probably could. And I think in that case, you know, the use of all these robots are a definite plus, you know, will there be other examples, maybe not at Walmart, but in other places where, where this robot robotic replacement of jobs becomes more of an issue. Sure. That's potentially possible. I just, I don't see this as an example of one of those. I think the way Walmart has been doing uh, and applying these robots is as thoughtful as the process we've just been discussing of how they're improving wages and improving other training benefits and overall conditions that the robots are just yet another example of that. And just in a totally anecdotal statement here, as a reporter, I get a lot of emails from opposition to Walmart, right? The, mm-hmm. the union organizers and everything mm-hmm. else. And those have really decreased in frequency these days. And usually if Walmart mm. makes any kind of positive announcement that somebody might construe as being positive in terms of improving employee perks and benefits and wages, uh, I would immediately get a response saying, you know, that's not true. And we take them to task on this, this, and this. And I haven't gotten that here. So maybe there really is some truth to it. Maybe there really is some real employee sentiment that's being changed over time. Yeah, that's definitely a good indicator, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And thanks for sharing that with us. Ricardo, Laura, thank you both for joining the rundown today. Really enjoyed your insights. And I hope you guys join again. I hope so, too. Thank you. I hope so, too. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. 
That's rethink.industries podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.